Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. Hey everyone, on today's episode of the Working Experience Podcast, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis discusses her book, The Heart of War, Misadventures in the Pentagon, as well as her various jobs for the United States government. I'd also like to take a moment to give you a promo code uh, so you can listen to her book at Audible. The promo code is ses 8 a B Z W G N A R E. That's S E S eight A B Z W G N A R E. She's a great guest. It'll be a great listen and enjoy. The working experience. Ninety three North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? NHR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my biscuits? Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was living his toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. 
everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Working Experience Podcast. This is Matt, and I am very pleased today to have on as my guest, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to do a brief introduction here, well, because it's, it's a bit long. Uh, Dr. McGinnis is a non-resident senior fellow, Atlantic Council U.S., Specialist International Security Congressional Research Service. Did I get that? Yeah, that's right. Does that yeah. all fit on a business card? Uh, no. Okay. But it does, but I guess it kind of works in an email subject line. But it should say, um, so the Congressional Research Service is, um, it's actually like Congress's in-house think tank. Um, right. We, um, respond to like questions from all members of Congress and their staffs. Um, we're nonpartisan. We've been around for like a hundred years, more than that. But I should note that everything I'm saying today is in my personal capacity. It doesn't represent any views of the United States government or the Congressional Research Service or anybody but myself. Yeah, I well, full disclosure to our listeners, Dr. McGinnis is a colleague of my brother, Paul. Uh, and I've done a few couple of podcasts with him and he's he's always very careful to say we are nonpartisan and uh, I mean I know his political views pretty well but he's yeah. pretty good at uh, not getting into it too too much yeah yep. <laughs> <laughs> gotta be careful gotta be careful uh, Dr. McGinnis and this is really the bulk of the podcast is also the author of Heart of War Misadventures in the Pentagon and that was published by, I'm forgetting. Post Hill Press in 2018, September 2018. Oh, right. yeah. okay. And that is a, that's a novel, correct? Yes. A non, uh, I mean, a fictional work. Yes. All right. Um, yeah, it was my, my brother's title, I had to nail this down after a while, is Nuclear Non-Proliferation Research Analyst. Does that sound correct? That's what I've nailed it down to. That's, that, yeah, that's, that sounds a bit, yeah, like yep. what your brother does. Yep. Okay. I'm good. I used to. So you guys are um, connected to the Library of Congress. Yeah, okay. that's right. I used to tell people he checked out books, basically. <laughs> assessed overdue fines, that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then kind of dabbled in North Korea on the side when he had time. Like you so. do, you know. Like, um, uh, the absolutely. new librarian, re relatively new librarian of Congress called us um, the Special Forces of Analysts. And I was like, Yes, that's awesome. Special forces, yes. That's Special pretty... forces of analysts. I are, like that. Yeah. I like You're that. targeted. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you should be wearing commando gear when you oh. go to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drop you into the hot zone, do yeah. the research, extraction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like that. that. Like, a, like a, a binder of ponies. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, your professional educational background. Sure. Um, so w where to begin? Um, I, I guess where a good place to start would be, you know, relative to the book, um, like how did this project get started? Um, so for your listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with Washington DC and how it works. You know, it's just 
it's it's a fairly conservative town little c right like it's it's kind of stodgy it's it you know and people have set path careers and you 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 write your analytic reports and you go into the executive branch and do work or you know um and you write some books and and that sort of it and um it's a it's a town that tends to prioritize um reading technical reports and histories and 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 Fiction and creative works is sort of like, why, why would you do that? Um, so, um, so it's kind of weird that I would choose of all things to spend my time writing fiction um, and, and on a, a topic and a place that's as complex as the Pentagon. But um, I was in Afghanistan. So one of my jobs when I was in the Pentagon, I was a director for uh, NATO's or operations in Afghanistan. And what that meant was I was, um, like helping build the coalition in Afghanistan, um, uh, harmonize NATO policies, and and help ensure you know be, be part of the team helping ensure that our our troops got what they needed on the ground. Um, and so I was out there on you know, I went back and forth from Afghanistan a bunch of times, um, and I was out there on a trip with then Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and we wa- we went. Um, on a helicopter ride on a Chinook from Kabul airport to uh, an, like an adjacent province, Wardak province. So it's in, in the Hindu Kush and it's, it's mountainous terrain. And so we, we go and um, have a great meeting on the ground. Um, Secretary Gates met with his Afghan counterpart. Um, we load back up into the Chinook. And at that point, one of the soldiers turned to me, like we're in our, these orange jumpsuits and the wind's whipping around, it's cold. Um, but what they do once you're aloft is, um, is you know, basically out of target range. Um, they, they lower down the back ramp of the Chinook. And so you can see out the back and you can see all of Afghanistan behind you and the, and the mountains and it's beautiful. And then the soldier invited me to sit off the back of it. And I was like, well, I mean, I'd seen photos of soldiers doing that before, sort of casually, like you're sitting there with like your legs dangling off the back of a helicopter ramp um, over, our, you know, a war zone. And but, so it's been, again, I'd seen photos of it before. So I was like, I'm going to do this. When else am I going to do this? I have to do this. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I, I, I waddled over and I had my body armor on. Um, my, my helmet didn't fit and I had my jacket. And um, it was so cold. And, and they strapped this this thin canvas harness around my legs, my upper legs. It wasn't even really around my waist. It wouldn't have done anything if there had been a problem, <laughs> like nothing at all. Yeah. So, um, but I, I, I sort of waddle to the edge and sit down. And I was so terrified. It was so scary. I was like, what am I doing here? I was 27 years old. And I'm in this ridiculous position that my I'm watching cobble go underneath my feet. Um, I'm looking at a chase helicopter. There's a guy with a big old machine gun next to me, just you know, trying to you know make sure that anybody who uses us for target practice um, is won't. Um, and at that moment, it occurred to me like two things: like, what in the world am I doing here? And second of all, wouldn't it be interesting to tell the story of how somebody like me would end up in this ridiculous position in the first place? Um, And so from there, it, um, the project, you know, my, 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 my first inclination was to do like a nonfiction. I would tell us, you know, 
interview other women in national security and sort of tell their stories that way. But as I got to writing and as I got into the project, I realized it had to be fiction. Because another thing was happening at the time, right? Um, there was a sense that um, Washington and the, the, the public servants within it, like we, we were just getting more and more disconnected from Americans, like outside of Washington. We're talking to ourselves so much mm-hmm. and not really, you know, showing how, you know, there's there's government civil servants out there really doing their damnedest to, to, to make the right calls and, and move the ball forward under ridiculous circumstances. And, um, and we see the homeland, right? We see Carrie and we see how, you know, she's bipolar, like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's she puts herself in very weird positions in in Homeland, and so but that's like the, the only sort of story types that are out there about national security. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's. Uh, this has to be fiction, mm. and I'd never written fiction before, so that was a, a learning process. But I, I started really putting pen to paper in 2013 and um, got it sent to the publishers in just after the election. So the whole the whole manuscript was done. It had gone through security review. I had to get the Pentagon to clear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it came out in 2018. So when you, um, let me look at my, uh, so th- this was, you said two, when were you in the helicopter? I was in the helicopter in t- 2007. So it was about 2007 to, to um, almost 2010 is when I was in that, that NATO Afghanistan role. So uh, from 2007 till two, so like roughly six years, this was kind of germinating. You were working on it, kind of like making notes, sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of telling these people every now and again, like I really want to get this project underway, or um, yeah, and just scribbling things to myself. But uh, it wasn't until. I went to London to do my PhD, and um, I, I I actually finally had the time and space to to think about it. I was thinking about everything, right? Because PhD, you got nothing but time on your hands to think through a problem set. Um, and it just over time, it became clear that I would have a hard time writing my PhD if I didn't get this out of my system first. So I took a month. I hold up in my um, best friend Kristen's um, guest bedroom, and this this is the bed that was there. And I, <laughs> nice. I, well, on this bed, I just wrote it for a month and had a draft yeah, um, at the end of August, I guess, 2014? Yeah, 2014. Um, and yeah, and then it was just rewriting and, and refining and editing from there. So how did you come to, you worked for the Department of Defense before coming to Congressional Research Service? Yeah. And how did you come to work at the Department of Defense? So I, I'm one of those weirdos that kind of knew that I wanted to get into this field at a very early age. Um, my dad was a DOD civil servant guy um, uh, who was stationed overseas. Um, so we um, grew up on military bases overseas. Um, and in the UK specifically, and I finished up high school in the UK, and I I watched you know my my friends you know their their fathers or mothers couldn't be at the play or the um, the 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 volleyball game or whatever because they were deployed to Iraq or they were deployed to the Balkans, and um, so growing up around that, I 
kind of got the sense that if we're going to be sending these people into harm's way, we we're, we're not just sending their troops. We're we're sending their families. We're affecting their families. We're affecting this broader system of, of people, and that that we need to care for. So if we're doing this, we better make damn sure that we've got the best strategy and the best capabilities possible. So that I mean, so there's always that bug um, within me. Um, I. My first gig in DC was at the project on nuclear issues um, at the, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So this major think tank, um, I could barely spell deterrence at the time. Like I'd, I'd done like all my work on like uh, NATO stuff and European security, which, you know, there was like a module that I took somewhere about nukes and deterrence, but um, somehow I ended up in this role, which was about like building and sustaining um, a, a networked community of nuclear weapons professionals. And, and like, so it just got this amazing education that I totally didn't expect on some of the fundamentals of national security um, and, and nukes. Um, but at the time, um, my boss over at CSIS said, you know, after I'd been there for about two years, he's like, okay, it's time to move on, right? Like you're young, you got it. You got to go cut your teeth somewhere else. Um, and he was like, you can continue in the nuclear weapons business or we can try, you know, put you somewhere else, do something else. And so I decided I wanted to try something very different. I mean, my first gig in in D.C. was something very different to what I'd studied before. And I'd learned so much and I grew so much. So I wanted to do something completely different still, um, which is how I ended up in uh the Office of the Secretary of Defense, um, the Undersecretary for Policy, uh, my first role there was in stability operations capabilities, which is a really wonky way of saying, like, trying to get the military to plan and prepare for um, all the kind of stuff that isn't killing people and breaking things, and, they, they, and, and therefore they don't always want to plan and prepare for. So uh, this is at the height of the, the Iraq surge and, and Afghanistan was getting hot again and um it was clear that our forces just weren't giving the training necessary to to you know dig the wells and build the schools and be like governance experts and and the folks from the state department we didn't have enough people there to help them so they were kind of on their own um so trying trying to fix that situation was was my first role so trying to do kind of the non-glamorous things that the military has to do sometimes yeah yeah and then like um the the military arguably has an institutional preference for yeah doing the hard you know hard war fighting right like um and the 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 view at the time was well if you're really good at war fighting well peacekeeping and and the stability stuff well that's not as hard so right. we're going to train for the high end stuff and we'll if we have to do the low end stuff we'll we'll just ad hoc it'll be fine but it right. turns that's not the case um yeah, yeah. insurgency uh, stability operations those kinds of things are really complicated and um require all kinds of like emotional intelligence and understanding of cultural dynamics and 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 that's the basic problem set and then like on top of that how do you administer a city how do you um yeah dig a sewage system like, you know, all right. that kind of stuff yeah, so I was working on that. <laughs> it was interesting, for sure. Interesting time. 
Yeah, I read a couple of books by, I think his name is Jeremy Scahill, and he wrote uh, a couple of books about, one was Obama's drone programs, and then another was the situation you're describing. And I remember a lot of it was about just putting in a sewer system, getting water running, goes mm -hmm. a long way with yeah. the locals, but yeah. it's not the glamorous stuff, so yeah. you know, <laughs> nobody really wants to do it. Right. Um, so the book... Uh, you said you started in 2013, yep. is that correct? Yep, so, yeah, started really focusing on it as a thing, but I it it think it was August 2014 that I sat in this bed somewhere else in Annapolis and just got it done. Thank so, God, it's a terrible first draft. I'm always interested in process. So when you sit down, like, what do you literally do? Like, when you're starting to write, is it pen and paper, typewriter? laptop you know it's it has until very recently been laptop only mm -hmm. um and what i do i'm a binge writer like i um and i'm a napper interestingly enough um and i also have to work in bed like finding all this like so and it's really kind of strange so what i do is i get up at um usually around seven in the morning um, get my cup of coffee, get a little breakfast, sit it on, on the bedside table, and then I'm, and I, I sit up in bed, and I've got my laptop in front of me, and I just go, right, I just write, and then my, um, I would write for about three and a half hours, then, then my brain starts to feel squishy, like it's like a sponge with too much water in it, uh -huh. and so to wring the sponge, I have to take a 20 to 30 minute nap, there's no other way to clear my head, um, uh -huh. I've, tried all kinds of things walks whatever no, nothing works i have to take a nap um and then once i wake up it's same three hours bang it away uh, just keep going and then um nap and then i stop it around dinner time sometimes if i'm really on a tear then um, i'll um do another three hour session between like seven and ten p.m but so I'll, you might write up to nine hours in a day mm -hmm. wow. once i'm in the project but it takes a little while to get into the project. Um, so for me, there's always a transition period of at least three days where um, the first day I'll get maybe 250 words, second day, 500 to 600, third day, 1,000. And then from there, I'm usually immersed enough to really go. Um, and that, yeah. like, and then with that, that sort of, and I'm, I'm just in it, right? Like the characters are telling me what to do or the ideas are sort of flowing and it's just there. It's just a matter of getting it on paper. And so, um, so yeah, I can focus and, and because I'm in bed, there's nothing making me uncomfortable. There's nothing distracting me. It's just, I'm there. Um, now, did you have mm -hmm. notes and like, did you, do you have pieces of paper you've scribbled on or are you talking to your phone or, I mean, I've heard all kinds of variations. I tend to, um, w w well, so I start drafting um and then the other interesting thing that happens for me when i'm about to take a nap i have a, a post-it notes next to me and a lap desk and what i'll do is like it's as i'm drifting off the ideas for the next scene or the ideas for the next piece of the argument or whatever it is that's usually when it occurs to me and and so i make sure that i write it on the on a post-it note stick it on the on the um on the board and then I address it when I wake up. Hmm. Um, otherwise, if, if it's, if I'm, if I'm doing notes 
what you know outside of that process i put them on a sticky note and then i've got a notebook that i um that i collect them in and then i just make sure that they're all addressed as i as i move forward by, by yeah. like, like taking them off <laughs> so it, it is funny how things tend to you know at like two o'clock in the morning all of a sudden i'm like oh that's a good idea i should write that down and and i think i'll remember it in the morning if i don't i know i don't i never, I never do i never remember it if i don't if i don't take time to to no. um, but but there's something about that that space between awake and asleep there's um this you, your sub my subconscious is able to percolate a little bit more and it's just it's ready to come out um yeah. I found that warm-up time, I was just watching something about Dick Cavett. He was that talk show host back in the 70s, and his show was like 90 minutes. And he said it was good because it was hard sometimes, but like you, you have to like warm up, like you were saying with writing. Like I think with anything, warm-up time is, you got to, you know, if you are going to write for an hour, you got to devote maybe 15, 20 minutes just to, I mean, I do. Yeah. Just writing things down, scribbling things down, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to find... I don't know if... I've never read anything by her, but the author, Terry McMillan, she wrote Waiting to Exhale, mm -hmm. How Stella Got Her Groove Back, um, which I kind of never wanted to read because I thought, well, that's for a certain audience. That's not me. But then I, I heard her speaking on NPR. She has a new book out. I think okay. things will get better from... Or it's all downhill from here or something. And she said she doesn't really know what the book is about as she's writing. She said she just, like, she doesn't know what the ending is. Mm -hmm. She just kind of lets it go. And like, I thought of it because you said you let the characters start talking. Mm -hmm. And it sounded quite similar to what she was describing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it, it was fascinating for me to experience that for the first time. And again, I prior to writing the novel, um, you know, I've, I've written technical reports, I've written a PhD, like this sort of analytic writing where, and it's, it's, it's a pretty specific form. Um, you've got your argument, then your counter argument, then the counters to the counter argument, and then recommendations or not because we're at CRS. Um, and it's, the logic flow is very clear. Um, this you feel when something's not working and the characters sort of weigh in and tell you what they want this is so i was mentioned earlier i had when i so I sat in his bed got the first draft done and it was atrocious it was so bad <laughs> so bad because um there's a lot of reasons for this one of the uh one of them is that um you know when designing this book, I did what every good analyst would do. I came up with Myers-Briggs, you know, personality types for every one of the characters, and I came up with their favorite foods, and what they're, you know, um, and their, you know, what they look like. I came up with, like, you know, little images of them, and um, like, by looking at different actors, and like, so, Voight looks like Bradley Cooper. Okay, right? Um, and the, it, the writing fell so flat. It just didn't, it was the, the, it wasn't until I finally just relaxed and the characters just told me to get out of their way uh -huh. and tell me the story uh -huh. that, the, that the, 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 the novel, the, the piece really became alive. 
um, there's and it was this connection to something other that I'd never experienced before. Um, but but yeah, uh, it's it, it it was it was amazing. When back to what you're saying about warmups, <clears throat> um, I you know paying attention to what different writers recommend and you know there's this this um, you know guideline out there or, or idea out there that every writer should write a thousand words a day right like that should be the pace you should be working doing that and you, and I think that's wrong to an extent right like um because it doesn't take into account that warm-up pe period that you need to you know it's sometimes it's okay to only get like a you know a sentence or two some days it's it, it it's just you, you have to be able to not feel bad for not meeting this artificial word goal. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice idea. It's a nice pacing thing. Um, and it can be useful at times, but it shouldn't be like this, this overarching, like if you don't meet a thousand words a day, then you're a failure as an author kind of thing, which I seem to, I feel like some people take it as. That's a type, type I, I have never understood. And it kind of fascinates me with life in general that, people are so drawn to those things. Like they want a template. They want a word count. If I do A, B, and C, I will get D. And it's like, if it's like that, then it's not creative. Then anybody could do it. Exactly. I, I, I don't, you know, it goes back to like Instagram affirmations. I mean, they fascinate me because it's like, don't, it's everybody's, there's always somebody out there who's going to tell you how to live your life. Mm -hmm. And there's always an audience that is going to be like, tell me how to live. Tell me how many words I should write a day. And tell like, I, I really love Robert Caro. He wrote uh, the Lyndon Johnson books. And I just finished the Robert Moses book. And I read, he wrote a book just called Working, how he does his work. Okay. And it fascinates me. Like he writes longhand. He does everything like that. And, other people's processes do fascinate me, obviously, big part of this podcast. But yeah, people want, I, like, if I do it like this, or they're quick to tell you don't do it like that. It's like a movie or a novel. And it's like, there isn't a template. That's the point, isn't it? Right, exactly. Um, there's no one path to success. There's no, no. I mean, there's, a, you know, with creative works, there's so many different ways that they can be done. Like, what there's seven stories, yeah. Right? There's, right, but it's the all director the said that. I've always liked that. Right, yeah. it's um, it's all in the telling, and it's all of all in these worlds, and it's all in the imagination. And there's going to be different ways that you access that, um, and and that's okay. Yeah, I think the only thing I've ever thought is like, it's more about like, all right, I'm going to sit here for an hour at least mm -hmm. with a my laptop or pad and pen, and I at least have to sit here. Yeah. And if I don't write anything, fine, mm -hmm. but I at least have to, and then yeah. if I have to do that, after an hour I'm free, or I might be going, it might, something might be happening. Yeah, there does have to, I mean, for me anyway, there's gotta be some rigor to it, it's gotta be some discipline. Yeah. Too. But. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, I find the same, like I, have to be in this room now, and I just moved into this house recently and this is my my office now and if I I have to force myself to be in here 
And, um, but if I try to, to, to write at somebody else's house or just take a break and do it differently, it just right now, especially because of the, the atmosphere, the stress and tension that's in the air right now, it's mm -hmm. so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to just sort of stress refresh the Washington Post website and just be, you know, and there goes your day. Yeah. Um, I find that having this place for me to, to, to focus and, and just, just be is really helpful. There was a book, I didn't read it, but it was called Everything is Illuminated. And I can't remember the author's name, but they made a movie out of it. And according, if I'm remembering this correctly, he wrote it when he was like 19 and he wrote it in, a, in about a month or like two months or something like that. And, uh, you know, so that's his process. I mean, and it, to me, it's like hitting a hole in one in golf. I wouldn't really <laughs> count on that, but... <laughs> You know, good on him. I don't think he's written anything since then. Maybe he figured that was that. I'm all, I'm all good. You know, and uh, <laughs> and other people, it it takes you know many years. And uh, so yeah, whenever I don't know, they try, again they try to like squeeze it into a template because I, I think people are very. It's frustrating, and it's yeah. kind of scary because you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, you could do anything with this. So, what am I supposed to do? And well, there isn't, I, I mean, there's no end of people who will try to give you advice on how to do it, but, you know, and, it, you know, some of that advice, as you were saying, is, is fine, but, like, I understand the thousand word thing. I get it. You're supposed to be disciplined, and but, like, as you say, you can be setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's artificial pressure. Um, yeah. when, when, you know, you don't, it, it's just not necessary. Um, no, no. Uh, especially because you know the the page can be the blank page is obviously an intimidating thing mm -hmm. uh, and when when the more reasons you have to be anxious about it the usually the harder it is to actually let go and put something there yeah and the other thing that um is critically important especially for writing i think is just being okay with it being a terrible first draft. It's always going to be a terrible first draft. I mean, it's just, that is the nature of writing, um, in, in my view. Um, I mean, maybe there's some some geniuses out there that really can just make it flow on the first go and, like, good on them. But um, for the rest of us, it's all in editing. Like, mm -hmm. like it's the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting. And so there's this this intimidation that if you don't have this perfect masterpiece in the first ground, well, then it's not worth it. Or, you know, I'm going to have to go through like 20 edits or 20 drafts. I just can't be bothered. It's just this mountain. No, just get it done. And then you'll have a thing to edit. And it's fun to edit. Like, it's fun to sort of take these things and, and, and sharpen and, 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 and really craft it into the, the piece that, that, that really resonates with you and, um, and, and with others and, and starts to, to, yeah, just help people walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. It's an amazing thing, but it's, it's, you're never going to get there the first time because this is an inherently complex process. Um, you know, we hear so much about, you know, people like Michael Jordan would say, mm -hmm. I've missed more shots than I've made and talk about his, you know, his process, or you hear about, I don't know, anybody seeing them as being stand-up comedians, you know, they've gone 10 years, gotten nothing, 
but it still doesn't seem to sink in. Like people are, I shouldn't say general, but people who think you have to hit it on the first time, it's like, no, it's work. Yeah. It is actual work. Mm-hmm. And it's, some of it's drudgery. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. Right. I mean, I teach 10th and, I, no, I'm sorry, I teach uh, 11th and 12th graders English. Mm-hmm. They're not huge readers. I'm not going to sit here and lie. <laughs> I also teach the less interested kids. Let me put it that. I don't like to say lower level. There, there are a lot of very intelligent, mm-hmm. not quite, doesn't quite have the fire to read I love 1984. It's one of my favorite books. And I'm up there yelling and hollering about how great it is. And they're on their phones. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is a lot of work. I mean, it's, and I, I like even reading something, if you don't understand it, read it again. Like I've read, I tried to read Beloved by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. I must have started that seven times and I couldn't get past page 15. And I was like, I, I don't get this. You know, she's an African-American woman author. I am a white guy. I don't get it, you know. But then I, I tried it again, and she became one of my favorite authors. I've read all her books. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I didn't get it. It was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, that's another thing. That you sort of, um, I think that, that it creates this creative block for people. Um, this fear that it won't be a bestseller or a fear that it won't be um, liked, that it will upset people, that the work will um, be pilloried or whatever. And the bottom line is that, you know, the book is, well, anyway, nothing is to everybody's taste and that's okay. Right. And just, you know, um, I got into a big argument with somebody about The Sopranos, which I despise. I can't stand that show. I don't know. I don't understand why people like it. I don't get it. I don't mean to offend anybody. (laughs) But I mean, all these people love it. So I'm like, all right, well, I don't know. But I just don't. I think it's kind of trite and overacted and cliched. And that's that's about it, you know. So as you say, I if I had been in the pilot audience the what do they call focus group mm-hmm. i would have said this is garbage don't pay any don't put any money into this it's terrible it's never going to work mm-hmm. what do i know nothing <laughs> but it's, it's and truly um people's tastes vary and uh like uh got one of my my negative reviews on amazon there's this guy who was like well why why wasn't this about the the, the contractor community and just like bringing all these things that the book didn't address. And it was like, it basically was clear as I was reading it, like he wanted a spy novel. He, right. wanted, he wanted some, he wanted something different to what my book was or was ever going to deliver. And yeah. that's just, I mean, do I wish he hadn't taken that out on Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but but to be fair, I mean, that's that is just the nature of the beast, and that's okay. Well, so, I mean, I wouldn't read a Danielle Steele and criticize it because it wasn't a, a serial killer, you know, Michael Conley. It's romance. I don't right. you know. Yeah. It's like, why? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't really. Uh, yeah, it's almost like futile. Like, okay, you don't like it. It's not in your genre. Not, like, I don't yeah. like fantasy writing. I'm not, you know, it's not sci-fi. Might be the best sci-fi ever. 
Right. That's not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And trying to, well, you, I think, you know, this is something I've repeated quite a bit to myself and others. You know, you said you enjoy it, the editing Mm -hmm. process. Yeah. And I would think like, look, you you can't think about if it's going to be a bestseller or your movie's going to be a hit or your band is going to be, I mean, it's like hitting the lottery. Yeah. Like, do you enjoy it? Exactly. Because if you're just doing it to be like acting Mm -hmm. or being a musician, like, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be rich and famous? Because they are two very different things. Right. And if you want to be an actor, you'll act in free plays and movies for free. And if you want to be rich and famous, probably not going to do that. Right. And I think um, for my writing, um, you know, there's maybe it's a, you know, cliche something. Um, but there's a message that I want to get out. Right. I want people outside the beltway in particular um, to have a better sense of how crazy the national security bureaucracy is right now. And to contemplate, are we really setting up our people for success? Are there structural things that are taking all these inputs of good people and turning them into something that's that's not quite foreign policy success? Um, and if that's the case, why? What can we do? I mean, We've been we've we've written so many technical reports on how the government needs to be reformed and to to get better at foreign policy. We we could fill a Walmart with the amount of studies we've done on this problem, um, but nothing changes. And so it was my hope, it still is my hope, that what people, you know by walking a mile in, in the protagonist Heather Riley's shoes um, and, and learning about the s- stories for the other characters, that they can, you know, see, feel why we might want to see some change, see what the stakes are and, and how hard this is. Um, because we're, we're, we're not solving this through the, the conventional DC ways. Um, Do you think like a... a- it fiction made that a little more accessible to people. Yeah, but because with fiction, you are co-creating a world. You're, it's it's a dialogue between the author and the and the writer, the or the, the author and the and the, the reader. Um, readers are able to take because it's fiction um, and story. Your readers can very easily access their own experiences and their own reflections and bring them to the themes that the, the a work of fiction um, explores. So, you know, doing book clubs, it was amazing to me, the folks who, who, who read Heart of War and then started going on about their own experiences as a woman in the national security business or their own experiences um, battling bureaucracy or their own, ex- you know, um, and how hard these these challenges can be, um, and, and so because because of the, that empathy, because of that dialogue, because we were co-creating, it's not just me p- putting a story out there; it's co-creating that that experience together and and what we learn from each other. As far as that's that's something that that, that it's really hard to pull off um, outside the the medium of fiction. I think. Uh, you know, I was doing a. I did a podcast a few months ago with a woman. She's an economist with the American Enterprise Institute. 
-hmm. And we kind of got into that. I was like, so, you know, you issue a report. Do you expect to affect change, policy change? And she said, yeah. And I said, is sometimes something lost in the translation? And she said, yes. Because she's like, you you know, you have a 400-page report, as valid as it is, this congressman or that senator, they got to get it out there in 30 seconds. And, you know, it's just, it's so hard, like, uh, because I said, is there some frustration? Like, look, here are the facts. Like, here is what you should do. Because, you know, to address her, I think her main thrust was uh, equal pay for women. Okay. And, you know, it's better for employer. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, maternity leave was, okay. was kind of sure. a big focus for her. Trying to show companies, if you do this, you actually save money. Blah, and she's just like, to some people, as soon as you say maternity leave that or parental leave, like they just, or anything, climate change, what they just, they already have their facts. They're already, so maybe weaving it into a story is a way to be like, look, this is a human story, not just facts and figures. Yeah, I mean, ever since we were cavemen around campfires, we used narratives and myths and stories to communicate key truths to each other. Um, the ancient Greeks had this this um, breakdown of, of knowledge, uh, mythos versus logos. And logos is the sort of like scientific method, reductive, like figure out how to like take the hill or build a school or, you know, pave a street or engineering, like understanding the physical world. Um, mythos, by contrast, was, was about exploring who we are as humans within our world, how we, how we relate to each other, what kind of people we want to be. And the, with the ancient Greeks, the, the, the two spheres of, of, of knowledge were complementary. One wasn't prioritized over the other. You couldn't be one without the other. Um, I just, I kind of keep coming back to what if we had lost as, you know, Washington and as a society, if, it seems to me we prioritize logos over mythos, right? We sort of see stories as this sort of, yeah, sort of fluffy thing that we can do yeah. for time, yeah. but it's really an indulgence. You know, if you're really serious, then you're going to read the technical report or the history or whatever. Um, but you, but but as as important as those tools are, it's only half a toolkit. Mm. What are we losing? And again, it sort of got into why why Heart of War really had to be a fiction, but mm. because it gives you this um, methodologically unbound space to 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 explore these issues. Yeah, that's you know, I mean, in this polarized era, it's you know someone like me might be tempted to say, why don't these people vote in their best interest? Because blah, they, they'll get health care and debt. And it's like, why do you think we have the other person in the White House? <laughs> you know, because if you're only feeding everybody, I mean, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is very intelligent. I voted for him first time around. But he doesn't kind of hit that gut place that other politicians can. And... You're right. I mean, that's what people respond to. They love that. Yeah. I mean, it, and, you know, used responsibly, it's, it's, it's a powerful way of education. It's a powerful, a powerful set of tools. I was um, doing this uh, Zoom sort of 
webinar thing with Max Brooks. Um, he wrote the um, World War Z. Um, and he was just talking about how storytellers, for whatever reason, they're just sort of divorced from the process of of American political communication these days. Um, it's it's we tend to focus on you know what the narrative ought to be. Like we do a thing. What's the narrative? What's the talking points? What how how what are the messages we want to get across? That's not that's not storytelling. That's not really. Like authentic storytelling, the, the kind of stuff that feels right, explores messages and 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 can and embed facts in them and can be a powerful way of communicating key truths. But it's it's a fundamentally different exercise than strategic communications or whatever we're calling it these days. It's 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 about connecting with each other as humans, um, and 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 using yeah narrative to do so. Or, well, and I, I, I go back. I want to get away from the word term narrative and storytelling. Yeah. Well, I, I, what caught my attention when you said used responsibly, because it can be used irresponsibly. It, yeah. Like false myths yeah. are created. But yeah, it's sort of like with the story, like tell me what actually happened. Like I know the facts, the figures, blah, blah, blah. Anybody can look those up. But yeah, mm -hmm. what, what's the actual... Like when people talk about welfare, you know, I remember being in high school, I remember teaching, you know, some kids said, I went to a private all boys high school and uh, some kid made a disparaging remark about welfare, welfare recipients. And the teacher who was not a bleeding heart, I would say he'd been in the Marine Corps and all that. And he said, does anybody in here know anyone on welfare? And not one hand went up and he just left it at that. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and I was probably 14, 15 at the time, but that always stuck with me. Like, right, I don't know. And anybody has a story and, you know, are there welfare frauds? Yes. Are there many people who are not? And are, yes, there's, yeah. but you only ever hear about, you know, just, it was very illustrative to me to be like, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should just not, <laughs> not make up a narrative that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you were ready to publish, did you reach out to publishers? Did you have to send query letters and outlines? Or I know publishers, whenever I've looked, some want chapters, some want outlines, they want letters, they want proposals. Um, mm. So I was kind of wondering what your experience was. So um, I have a, a kind of a funny story with representation. So um, I, I have two um, agents that I primarily work with. Um, one who works with um, works in LA um, and one who works in New York with publishing houses. The one in LA really works on adaptations for, for movies and that sort of thing. Um, so I finished the novel, the first draft, the really crappy one, um, but I had this great tagline. It's a Devil Wears Prada set in the Pentagon. Woo. Um, and that I, is a good tag. You need a good tagline. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I went back to London. Uh, I was um, a research consultant at a think tank there, uh, Chatham House. And um, I, I went for lunch with my colleague and he's like, so what, so what did you do over your summer vacation? And I was like, well, I, I wrote a novel. And he was like, do you need an agent? It turns out that his, um, his, brother's ex-girlfriend was this agent in LA and and she's very interested in talking to me and so she took me under her wing and and what what happens these days um 
because publishing houses, unless you're already a very established author, most publishing houses don't give authors much support anymore. You, 20, 30 years ago, you would send in a, a rough manuscript and an editor would work with you and work with you until it was ready to go and then publish. Agents are more and more performing that, that role these days um, because again, margins are so low at the publishing houses, they put all their money and their editorial resources against the established authors and, and marketing and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, so going in the door with publishing houses, you have to have an A plus manuscript. Um, and so the a, Rachel worked with me for, a, you know, a couple of years getting it into shape. Um, but Rachel works with students. She doesn't work with publishing houses like she she's not a literary rep so we were um a literary agent so I was trying to figure out how to, who is the right person to represent me with in the publishing world and there's this Chesapeake writers workshop in Arlington Virginia that just popped on the calendar I just happened to see it on Twitter and the, it was it, you know this day of like what is social media like it's just sort of writers business kind of tips but they had these this meet and greet kind of thing with um with agents and you paid like 30 bucks and you got 10 minutes with an agent to pitch them and you know uh, and i saw one of the agents that was going to be there adrian uh Rantes or helen and i i was she's the one i wanted to work with like she's like absolutely i want to be working with her she's incredible like the, the the voices that she's cultivated she works at the foundry which um literary media which is a, a group that i've i have a lot of respect for um so I, I paid my 30 bucks and i got my 10 minutes with her and she was like yes let's do this and so wow. um i sent her the manuscript and and um we've we use yeah and i guess it was about a the, the manuscript was pretty much I did one more editorial pass with with Adrian, and then we sent it to the Pentagon for security review, and then to publishers, and just after the election. What was interesting about that, just as a digression, was Trump had been elected, and so a guy. So, and I'm querying my book, or you know, my book is being queried by Adrian. And the feedback was that everybody was just in in New York was just too scared and nobody wanted to touch politics or political fiction. And there's clearly no appetite out there for political fiction. And I was like, you people are nuts. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I got a lot of there's a lot of passes on it. Um, and then the other feed, bit of feedback was that, you know, women don't read political fiction. They don't read. They don't, women don't care about national security and women are the primary audience. So right, that doesn't make sense to go with this. And I was like, you can't. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, many reasons we've got a lot of, there's a lot of problems and that need to be solved. Um, yeah. uh, so Post Hill Press, however, was based in Nashville and they're like, let's do this. Let's go for it. And there and you go. There we go. <laughs> wow. That's it. Yeah. So which forms is it? There's a physical form, obviously, because I did order that from yes. Amazon. There's an audio book, which I couldn't figure out because technology is not my thing. Uh, so there's <laughs> audio book. Yeah, it's pretty pathetic. Um, and then can, there's Kindle. electronic versions yeah. available as well. Yeah. Wow. Kindle and, nice. and all that stuff. Yeah. 
So it was published in what year? 2018? Mm -hmm. September 2018. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And did you do like uh, any speaking? Did you do events? Did you know talk to people and... Yeah, I mean, I've done a bunch of book clubs. Um, I had a launch event at the Atlantic Council about, you know, women in national security. Um, I did an event with New York University. I've done um, some talks at Chatham House uh, also when I went to London. Um, we had an event for the book. Again, to talk about, like, what are the experiences and roles of women in national security and... Um, what is you know a lot of discussions about gender and diversity and 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 those sorts of questions wrapped up within that but also storytelling like this no kidding there it was yeah <laughs> doing this crazy thing um so yeah a lot of like book talks and um yeah and but no i guess why i'm sort of stumbling and hesitating right now is um there was no formal book tour um right. which was another thing that was sort of surprising to me going into this that um book tours themselves again unless you're an established author they're becoming increasingly rare because there's just no not a real return on investment um so i would yeah. basically go you know as insofar as i had a book tour i basically find places that i wanted to go or friends that i wanted to visit and hang out with them and try to line up a talk and 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 um meet people and have a conversation about national security the one event i went i did see michael moore many years ago at a barnes and noble in new york at the same barnes and noble i saw hunter thompson and johnny depp wow because nice. we're doing the movie came out for yeah. fear and loathing it was hunter thompson didn't speak to any he didn't do anything he stood up in front and he just kind of mumbled. Any attractive woman who came into his orbit, he was all about that. And Johnny Depp just sat at the table with his baseball hat pulled down. It was the most bizarre thing. It's just like, <laughs> what are we doing here? Like, people were kind of hooting and hollering. And it was obviously a contractual obligation he was fulfilling. <laughs> and that was about it. I guess we're all hoping something was going to happen. And, it, you know, we hung out for about half hour i'm like well i guess this is about he wasn't even signing books he there were these pre-signed stickers that uh, an assistant was sticking in the books which he obviously didn't sign any yeah <laughs> i was like well at least i got to see him in the flesh that was kind of I mean, that's true i mean but that's so, that's that's very yeah that's strange so would you say that women are underrepresented in national security matters uh, history, yeah. if you will. You know. Sure. Um, I, you know, just over the course of my career, um, that's changed significantly. So it was certainly starting out, like, one of these things was not like the other. Um, and there are more and more women entering the field. But um, I'm, I'm coming to the view that just changing the gender balance is necessary but not sufficient um the military the pentagon national security like these institutions they they get their organizational cultural roots from the military right and these are male dominated hierarchical institutions that's their organizational culture um 
and that's you know effective in some ways historically for you know so it's, it's understandable um but you, you first of all you don't necessarily need those kinds of skill sets and that kind of decision making for defense policy we need the best people possible around the table helping spitball and and and, and shaping options so that the president has the best set of options on behalf of the nation to choose from you don't need to be able to do like 50 pull-ups um to, to pull that to, to bring that kind of capability to the table um and hierarchical decision making tends to stifle creativity also problematic so um but but in the place like the pentagon with the the, the that organizational culture it's 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 hard to express yourself it's hard to, as a woman to sort of get your views out there um the there's this thing about women need to get better at interrupting right like i think madeline albright said it once you know sort of commenting on on gender roles and 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 differences and how well men will interrupt each other over you know during conversation and that's just a sort of n normal flow of dialogue um so women need to get better at doing that women need to get better at serving themselves and jumping into the conversation well most women that i know myself included find that deeply uncomfortable like to to to, to have that kind of combative style um or at least that's how i feel it is um and so so not only are you trying to figure out how to present your idea or get your views heard but you're also trying to figure out how to do so in a way that is going to be resonate the most around the table where it's like you know i need to be assertive but if i'm too assertive then i'm going to be seen as you know aggressive and then i'm dismissed that way it's all those sorts of those those microaggressions that build up and, and make it just hard to 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 do your job um I might also posit I would take it the other way and say men need to listen better and stop interrupting. I mean, I would feel like that would be a, good, a positive organizational cultural change for mm -hmm. sure. Um, oh, shoot. There's one other thing that I was going to say um, on that note about. Oh, shoot. It'll come to me. <laughs> okay. I probably interrupted you because I just. <laughs> <laughs> I just dive right in and interrupt. It is amazing how people, they sort of wait for their turn to talk as mm -hmm. opposed to actually like taking in what the other person just said and responding to that. I noticed that on um, the Sunday morning new uh, political shows, Meet the Press and whatnot. It's just, I feel like the person has three talking points and no matter what the question is that's asked. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to keep repeating those talking points because I've had no time to prepare for this. Some staffer handed me the talking points and <laughs> off I go to sit with Chuck Todd and just keep yeah. saying, well, I think we're moving forward on that. And I don't know. Yeah. Like never, never really answer the question. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and that's that. I, I just remembered what I was going to say earlier. Again, um, which is sort of, it sort of builds on your point. I mean, it's more like a, a nice meander down a different path from what you're just saying. Absolutely, absolutely. 
<laughs> but um, it's this, uh, again, the, the military is a, you know, masculine, stoic kind of organization. Like, so when you're in the Pentagon, in response to an emotional situation or, or like a, or, or um, decisions or, you know, it just, your your options are your range of emotions to respond to you know, to something are to either laugh or, or to drink or to get angry. You got the three: laugh, get angry, drink. Well, um, drinking and angry go very well together. Totally, totally. <laughs> um, so you know, so you've got the gallows humor. You've got you know, and and um, you. If, if you, th those are the acceptable emotional responses. If you do something different, you're just weird. Um, I'm a passionate person. I'm, wh when I get into an issue, if I feel strongly, the waterworks will happen. That is just, I mean, I will cry. That, that is how I roll. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget the guy who told me, well, that made me uncredible. I was I was making myself not credible because I was I cared too I was obvious that I cared too much. That's sounds it, like it sounds like a high school. Yeah, it, and it was just like my passion for this work is what makes me effective. Right, and that, and that shut me up for like a solid year as I sort of grappled with. Hang on a second, if I if I present myself. Uh, you know, in, in an authentic way, I'm not credible. Yeah. It's not, so, so again, that's what I mean when we're talking about like changing organizational cultures, like creating environments where it's okay to be authentic because you, if you're not authentic, how can you possibly come up with the kind of creative solutions that our country needs to benefit the nation and the world? It's it's like trying to do so with like your hands tied behind your back. It's just not right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the laugh, drink, or angry thing. I mean, there's a lot of fear in that, a lot of insecurity. Mm. You know? Like I'm I'm threatened, so I'm going to get angry or I'm going to laugh it off. Like it doesn't matter because yep. I don't know how to respond because sure. I haven't been. Well, look at the guy who who was it? The naval officer, the captain of the ship, who lost his position because mm -hmm. he spoke up for his men. Said, you know, I mean, to me, that makes kind of a lot of sense. And apparently he was known for operating in the chain of command, very reliable. Mm -hmm. And it's like what exactly he said happened. One of the sailors died and he lost his position because he and I, I think like what is the end result here for you guys? Is it preserving a culture or getting a result or getting like healthy sailors or. Right. Afghanistan together or and I feel like this happens with a lot of organizations it's like more about preserving the status quo and the culture because there's a lot of people who benefit from that as opposed to achieving a stable Iraq perhaps yeah I mean it's it's the the question that keeps me up at night like that I that how do we have these inputs, these great people, but you put them in this weird pressure cooker of a place and then you get these suboptimal outcomes. There's something in this, this machine. And it's, it's, I mean, I, I tend to be of the view that it's not 
I mean, yes, there's actors and interests and they've got their interests and they've got their, their bureaucratic stakes and those sorts of things. But to me, it feels like there's something more. It's not um, malicious intentions. It's something more like the road to hell is paved with the best intentions. And, 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 and so, you know, having survived any number of bureaucratic turf wars and, um, the, 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 um, the, the, the lack of information, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. You don't have good information. Nobody like really knows what's going on. Um, strategies are, are constantly changed you know how how do we succeed we how can we possibly succeed if those are the conditions in which we're we're, we're setting up our people i don't know i, I think and, and again there's like basically everything tank report in the 2000s when we're in iraq and afghanistan they, they all came to the same conclusions right like we need to we need to fix how government does this stuff um and no progress was ever made because we still think about the Pentagon and, and these institutions as widgets or machinery when it's people. These are people that are that are there trying to do the job. And these people, um, you know, they've been leaving. And we, we, we've, we've, over the past 20 years, our civil service has, has been decimated. Um, so you've got fewer and fewer people doing harder and harder jobs under more and more trying circumstances. Um, of course, we're, 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 we're getting to, I mean, if people are policy, well, then. Do you think people have left out of a frustration with that culture that just seems to refuse to respond? Yeah, out of the, out, out of the, the culture. It's been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, my my own view on that or my own observation um, is that it's basically after September 11th, um, we started we started these wars and we're running hard and hot for almost two decades now. Um, but after a while, you start seeing like, despite everybody believing in the mission, there's so many people believing in the missions, particularly Afghanistan, I, be I was a believer. Um, I really wanted to to help the, the Afghans achieve their goals for themselves, um, but after after a couple of years of, of again running hot and not seeing results and not really, you know, losing friends, getting making family mad because I couldn't go to family reunions or all that kind of it just grinds and wears on you and then you know, there's an expression your fun meter gets pegged and it's just uh -huh. you know um it's exhausting i i've been fortunate enough to find a way back into government service um i i be, because national service was really important to me um uh but I'm in a place where I can really, you know, write on the ideas in, in a way that um, resonates with me. Um, but a lot of folks haven't been able to go back. They've just sort of, you know, gone into the, onto new lives and new, new uh, jobs. And we've lost that technical uh, expertise. We've lost 
these people who know how to make government work. And that's sad. Um, it's really sad. Yeah, you know, I, I, it popped into my head um, when you were talking about the thousand words, you know, that, that advice of a thousand words. And it, it, that whole culture kind of smacks of that, of a template. Like, we don't know what to do, so we're going to follow the template. It doesn't matter if the template works. Right. Or we get any results out of it. But we're doing what we've always that whenever people talk about precedent or in other words, that's how we've always done it. I'm like, all right. And it may have worked 10 years ago, 20 years, whatever. I mean, I run into it in education, too. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. But does it work now? Right. And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. But again, like if I mean, if the military doesn't sound like the most creative culture, you know, not really encouraged to come up with <laughs> you know right. sir i have a great idea like right <laughs> private thank you very much and <laughs> so yeah security <laughs> yeah so well what uh what books do you like to read on your own to circle back here so i'm i actually love sci-fi and fantasy really yeah um any particular authors john scalzi is one of my favorites chuck wendig okay um, uh, I've just recently reread the Hunger Games. Um, I've never read those. So it's it's um deeply you know profoundly disturbing in a lot of levels. Um, but it's it's also interesting. I um, read the author's project right, so she was trying to find a way to explore and explain just war theory to a younger adult audience. And so she created this construct of the Hunger Games, and it was also derived from Greek mythology. Um, and to, to, to set up this world in which these ethical questions of when is it just to use force and what, you know, what tactics are just with it when you are using force. And, I, and, and on, on those, by that, that standard by the metric, I think that the Hunger Games does a fantastic job of, of, of introducing new audiences to those kinds of profoundly important societal questions, but um, that don't get a lot of airtime <laughs> these days. Well, I get, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about packaging things in a form that is, I mean, you could give a class on ethics and talk to 10th graders about it, but they love the movies. The readers love the books mm-hmm. and it's a way that, you know, I was remembering a book I read, I think I was 13. It was the Dragonlance Chronicles. My brother and I were big into Dungeons and Dragons. You know, my brother, it's not a big shock. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. D&D nerds. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I remember this book, it was Dragons of Autumn Twilight. And there was the, or it was in that series anyway, and this, there were these twin brothers, the evil one, the good one. And the, the good one was talking about his brother, who eventually had a redemption. But he said, you know, my brother helped people when they spit it back in his face. He helped people who didn't want his help, who cursed him. And that was an important lesson that I didn't even realize I was learning at the time. That, like, it's easy to help people who are nice and who say thank you. And it's very hard to help people. You know, I t- broaden that a little more, like, you know, people of my political stripe tend to denigrate Trump supporters. How do they vote for that guy? And he's not, with, you know, and like, look, they're not all, it's not 
just dummies. You know, they have their reasons. Yeah. And I come from a certain background that those reasons don't really resonate, but at least I try to recognize that. So I'm like, calling them deplorables was probably not the best political strategy to win hearts and minds, you know? And it, it does speak to that, like, yeah, it's, it's easy to talk to your supporters. It's a lot harder to talk to people who don't like you and explain to them how you want to help them. And, you know, it's so it taught me, I guess, to be a little more like, yeah, it's nice to get a thank you. But you also have to understand why you're doing something. Is it to get a thank you or because it's, you know, sort of the right thing to do, I guess. Yeah. So stuff like the Hunger Game, they, uh, that stuff's all very valuable. Yeah, I know there's not a whole lot of I love to read fiction and uh, I mean I, I like historical biographies too and things like sure. that. Yeah, and those well done or you know again like you're getting into the stories like how yes how did this decision happen what were the circumstances how, who are the other players what yeah. were they saying like how you know it's it's um the stories make it help stories are so important for sense making. Um, yeah. um, stories are so important for um, resonance, for for absorption and resonance, and they're so important for building empathy, as you you just pointed out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was looking up uh, other government officials who have written novels. I couldn't find any novels, mm-hmm. but there are a number who have written, you know. Self-aggrandizing autobiographies and stuff. I tend to steer away from that. I I came across Lindsey Graham's the title of his book, My Story, and I can almost picture the cover of him standing there with the American flag in his clenched fist. My story, and I think I might skip that one. (laughs) It's definitely a um a a specific genre of those those sorts of political autobiographies and uh yeah it's um and and they can be useful like um one of the autobiographies that i really got a kick out of well kick something um robert gates's duty um oh, what okay. fascinating about that was that he write the time period in which he's writing is him being a secretary when i when i was working and traveling with him right and um he was the secretary that I worked for. We went to Afghanistan together. And so seeing his or reading his view of how these events transpired and, and me, like it was this very interesting um, experience of, of, of knitting together my sort of like, you know, peon ground up like view with, with his sort of top down what was happening at the bigger level, what resonated with him and didn't. I thought that, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, that reminds me of the book Wise Guys, um, you know, that Goodfellas was based on. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't like a god. It was like, here's an everyday street-level guy who just does this as a job. Like, this is his profession. And it, it was that's what, what caught people so fascinating. Like, it wasn't Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone. It was just Henry Hill. He's a guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So what I want to end with... Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, The Other Westmore, or if you've heard of him. No. He, uh, his, he's Westmore. He went on to the tough upbringing, African-American guy, Baltimore. 
and he ended up going in the Marine Corps and, and working for Obama, actually, and he does a lot of speaking now. The other Westmore ended up in prison for the rest of his life, uh, botched jewelry, heist, killed an undercover or an off-duty police officer, and they grew up just a few blocks from each other. So the point was like, but for a few twists and turns, I could have been him. So they corresponded and yeah. all of that. But what caught me was that he he talked about discussing the title of the book because the other Westmore was not his title. Mm. So I was wondering, was this the original title? <laughs> no. <It wasn't>. Okay. <laughs> it was the hardest. It was the hardest. Um, uh, it was first called Pumps in the Pentagon, as in like the shoes. Uh-huh. And it was Stick in the Pentagon. And I, I just knew, I was just like, this, this is terrible. It's terrible. And um, my you know, best friend, Kristen, partner george was sort of um talking with them one night and i was like i need to figure out a title for this book i'm just coming up blank and i I think because i was so close to it i couldn't really figure it out and he just looked at me he's like the heart of war (laughs) and i was like oh yeah oh yeah that's it (laughs) yeah um, yeah, and it, because it, it really captures so much about the book, like for the for the war nerds out there, like the art of war, you know, by Sun Tzu and Clausewitz is sort of an homage to that. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.